0: Hello and welcome to this very edition of the Culture File Weekly, where things are taking a rather apocalyptic turn, whether that's in artist Danny Osborne's visions of melting ice and molten lava, or in the old Norse image of Yggdrasik, the tree of life, or indeed in Bill McKibben's book The End of Nature, which is Paddy Woodworth's selection for the Naturalist Bookshelf a little later on. But we begin this time on a clear day in West Cork, with the artist Danny. Osborne. Anyone who's chanced upon the artist statue of Oscar Wilde reclining on a rock in Merrion Square, Dublin, can feel Osborne's fascination with geology and its multicoloured forms. Osborne has travelled to encounter landforms from the Arctic to the Andes, but he's always drawn back eventually to his home on the edge of the island in the Berra Peninsula. Culture Falsonia Gallagher met with Osborne on the peninsula to talk voyages, old and new. That's
1: images uh, of it's a radar
0: scan oh, okay.
1: of uh, Iris Harbour. There was actually a Risso's dolphin there years ago, which we which we. Uh, which had been stranded, it got confused somehow behind some, I think, some, some muscle lines and, and buoys and things. And I don't know if it was, Anyway, it was beached on its own as well. So we managed to uh, get it and keep it from drying out, and then got a vet uh, down who, who was uh, sort of specialising in the. Uh, whales and dolphins at the time and she gave it a few shots of multivitamins and some sort of booster stuff and, uh, and it perked up mine and, and then we, we took it out in a small rib and, uh, and set it free and she went, went out to sea Wow but, um, So, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a scan I'm uh, Danny Osborne and I uh, live on the Bearer Peninsula and uh, I make art <laughs> um, uh, copper, copper oxide, which I got from Allihies Mines. The drawing it more or less depicts the what the whale saw when it swam in and was beached. So I, I didn't say that before, but it, it was beached the other side of Bear Island, and went into this sort of bottleneck, and then uh, never got out. Now it may have been dead before it got that far but anyway this was its last journey so and just thought it was a nice thing to to actually draw onto its ribs
2: And so would you say um, that a lot of your work is land art since it's from the land and using materials of the land and it depicts the land
1: It, it is, more, yeah, it's, it's very geological, it has been for a long long time Yeah, the Oscar Wilde monument was quite a, a learning curve because I had to, I had to work out a lot of different ways of doing it and i sort of consulted, uh, you know, geologists have sourced the different stones who put me on to different people in different parts of the world. The, there's some quite rare stones in it, and like the jacket is made of nephrite jade from the, the Yukon in, in Canada and the collar and cuffs that bright pink stone is got a rare rock called Thulite from central Norway. And the head and hands are made of jade from Guatemala.
2: Because when when someone looks at it first, they might just think that it's a painted statue or something. That's kind of the general conception, isn't
1: it? I suppose they're not used to seeing coloured pieces of work like that. But it was actually really difficult to source stones which is going to last in the in this climate. There's so much rain, you know. If you use things like marble, coloured marbles, there's some lovely coloured marbles, but they they only last a couple of years and they begin to whiten and grow because the surface just depletes. But the all the stones I used are so hard; they they last, you know, a thousand years. But the uh, the Oscar one that was made in 1997, it was put up and uh, I haven't touched it you know I haven't repolished it or anything and it's still you know bright as it ever was and shiny it'll never lose its color it's amazing i first made a trip to the arctic in 1977 and uh, you know just borrowed uh, about 200 pounds from the, the the bank manager here and and set off when I got there, I, I I was just knocked out by the, the place, you know, the landscape and and the Inuit people are fantastic and just, just lived with them and, you know, went out hunting with them and just stayed out in the ice, camped out in the ice for for three months and painted a, a series of pictures. But the reason I went out there was really because having been painting around here all the the, the, the hills, I could see how they'd just been totally shaped by the, by the action of ice over thousands of years. So I was, my paintings were getting more extreme, you know, going up to the tops of mountains and <laughs> struggling with cancer. So I thought, well, I might as well go to the source of this where it's been happening and to see, see what it's like there, which I did and then got very taken with the place. So I've been going back ever since uh, quite frequently. And then myself and Jerry Wardell organised the first Irish Arctic expedition and uh, it had a cameraman with us. Uh, that was a six-month expedition.
2: In your work, have you attempted to document the change that's happened or do you document you know, the beauty of the subject?
1: No, in a way I'm, I'm more interested in the... Uh, Geological physics of it, more or less, or the the, you know, the structure and the way ice acts on the landscape. But I haven't really been documenting it in in, in, a, in a in a way which shows shows anything else. So so I uh, I, I can show you some drawings which I uh, which I did on my last trip. Do you want to
3: go and look?
2: In here. <laughs> nice and messy, like every artist studio should be.
1: <laughs> and that's after I tidied up this morning mm. as well. <laughs> Um, so charcoal, that, no, that's actually uh, just um, pencil. OK. Yeah. yeah, this is a piece which I just recently did with um, graphite powder. I just did it with my finger, and I love doing that because it's so broad. You, you, there's no way you can start fiddling around like you can with a pencil. It's just sort of big, broad strokes. And there's a lovely texture of the paper which through. It's almost like a, a sparkle or something. And that's uh, that, that's Hungry Hill, from the Adrigal side. Yeah, that little house there used to yeah. belong to James Lovelock, who uh, he was responsible for the Gaia theory, that everything in the world is uh, self-regulating. It's a, the whole world is a system of self self regulation or regulating. In, in other words, you know, it takes the carbon dioxide and stores it, and then keeps it at a certain level, and it keeps the oxygen level in, in exactly right and comfortable for all the living species. That's until the industrial revolution, yeah. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then things started going completely out of kilter. But uh, he used to come over in in the nineteen seventies, uh, you know, for about three months every year, and live in that little house um, underneath this ma- magnificent rocky mountain. And so he he came up with the idea for for this really when he was there and in the house there. One of the things that, that I I mean I call this. Um, James Lovelock's aha moment, (laughs) because he realised that even inorganic stuff like rocks and things, they're all part of the whole self-regulating process. And other things like lichen and mosses and plants, they they actually excrete chemicals which accelerate the breakdown of rock. And so they break down maybe ten times faster than they would just through Um, physical processes like freeze-thaw and and wind and things like that. And so, you know, they're all part of the whole thing where where one thing is working with another to make the world a a habitable place. I never knew him in the 70s when he was there. I never heard of him then. But at the same time, you know, myself and my friends, we were sort of thinking of similar kind of thoughts but in a slightly more (laughs) different way. (laughs) many years now on these cast lava pieces. And uh, so we went to Guatemala. I, I, originally, I tried to get to Hawaii to it because there's some very um, fluid lava coming out of the lava, the, the volcanoes there. But now um, the geological survey of the U.S. <laughs> weren't interested, wouldn't let me near it. So. I eventually found a volcano in Guatemala, and we went out there for three months, I think in 2010. And then I developed this method of casting the uh lava coming out of the out of the vent of a volcano.
2: You're actually casting um, molten lava?
1: Yes, yeah. Yeah. That year we were learnt, learnt quite a lot. So I've developed the, the this method which worked quite well in having a, a tripod and then a long twenty one foot pole with the mould on the end which we actually shove into the into the lava flow and then Bring it out and then open the mould up, but uh, I mean it took months to work to, to work it out and develop it, and then they started working. So there was a huge eruption just as we were finishing the work, and unfortunately a number of people were killed. But we were uh, fine, but we it, then it stopped flowing. So then we went to Hawaii, and, um, and I found there was a small piece of land on the side of the volcano with. In uh, in Hawaii in Puyuo, and the lava was just running right through the middle of it, which was perfect. So it gave me a chance to uh, to work there and uh, and take the material away. So I, now I've got about uh, 46 finished pieces of work.
2: What's happening at that piece of land in Hawaii now?
1: Um, it's it, the, the lava's stopped at the moment. It had a, a quite a, a big blowout about uh, two years ago, and um, and the, all the, the lava drained from from the magma chamber underneath. And but it's just starting up again now, so I'm hopeful that it'll it'll get back into action in the next year or two, and so I can get out there again and do a bit more. There's there, there's a there's a couple of pieces which I want to do which will sort of round this whole series of work off what what we've got here is is, there's various things like there's two human stomachs a bowler hat an ammunition box um, a pith helmet and a bible all all cast from 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 life but um, it's really to do with colonialism (laughs) Uh, and just the, the, the whole sort of structure. The material of lava is is so symbolic for me. Everything in the world is made of lava. When the world cooled down first, or began to cool down, it was just lava all on the surface. Then it broke down into various elements, minerals and different things and chemically bound water, and it all metamorphosized into what we have now, you know, People running around and plants and and things, so it's like taking a, a giant, mighty leap from sort of the beginning of time almost to to what we have now. You know, like a baby's bottle or or a, you know, ammunition box full of bullets. <laughs> it's uh, so it, yeah, it, it's it's an amazing substance to think of it in that way. It's it, I find it quite meaningful. <laughs>
0: In the studio of Danny Osborne there and the reporter was Anya Gallagher. And to see more of the artist's work, DannyOsborne.com is the fairly self-evident destination for you. From Viking-era stories of warring gods to the poetic epic that is Beowulf, from Wagner's Ring Cycle to the rise of Nazism, from Marvel's mighty Thor to contemporary white nationalism, Old Norse mythology has had a profound effect on Western European culture. But while Thor or Ragnarok may have sold millions of tickets at the multiplex, what did we really learn about the myths behind the CGI? Heather O'Donoghue, Professor of Old Norse Icelandic, literature leads us now through the many ways the myths have shaped the modern mind
3: the Old Norse myths are stories about the gods first of all the gods who who, who peopled asgard aus um, in in the Old Norse form, and they They were the the names that we know, really. The names Thor, Odin, Freya. The interesting thing about the Old Norse gods is that they were not eternal and they were not perfect. So they were a curious kind of reflection of humanity. They were fallible, they, they experienced sadness. Odin, for instance, was untrustworthy, an oath-breaker. Thor had a kind of what we might call now an anger management problem, <laughs> and, and he he, he, was, he had a very short fuse and was liable to violence. So there are lots of stories about the gods, but the great kind of centre of Old Norse mythology, oddly a centre that's the end of Old Norse mythology in, in, in one sense, is what's called Ragnarok, which means something like the judgment of the gods or what the gods deserved, um, it was slightly mistranslated, actually, as the twilight of the gods, and that's what gives us Wagner's Goethe-Demmerung, the dimming of the of the gods. And Ragnarök is the time when the gods, as it were, get what was coming to them, if you want to take a kind of moral line. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an apocalyptic view of uh, it's the end of the world when... When the world will kind of implode and mountains will split apart and the gods will face their equal and opposite adversary, a a monster. So Thor will meet the world serpent, the, the monstrous great serpent that holds the world together. The influence of Old Norse mythology has been absolutely immense on Western European culture, on literature, on the visual arts, particularly on, I suppose, what I'm especially interested in, the politics and intellectual history of the development of, of, of Western political culture. Wagner's use of Old Norse myth is, is, is interesting because he didn't write the Ring Cycle in the order in which it is now preserved and performed. And it's that bit with the Rhine maidens and so on, which is the least dependent on Old Norse myth. So if you just kind of... uh, When you start off listening to Wagner's Ring Cycle, you're not getting the full force of Wagner's dependence on Old Norse, which is an odd kind of thing. But in fact, almost everything else is from Old Norse myth, and and, and the rest of the story about Siegfried and Brynhilde and so on is is all straight Old Norse. I've just been reading Tom Burkett's book, The Norse Myths, and, and he has this marvellous way of putting it. He talks about how Old Norse Myth became a tool of cultural warfare in Nazi Germany, which is, you know, kind of exactly, exactly right, really, and, and how Old Norse Myth be, w- was used and provided kind of iconic symbols and scenes for what we now w- would call um, the white supremacist movements, the far-right movements... The the Rise of Racism. It's nothing really about the content of the Old Norse myth that lends itself to these kind of deplorable ideologies. It's because it was imagined that Old Norse myth represented a survival of ancient Germanic belief and wisdom. There's a kind of continued idea of the kind of male, muscular, blonde, tall... Um, essentially white hero on the other hand many of those particularly from the 1930s many of those marvel comics were written and illustrated by jewish writers and illustrators and some of them are specifically anti-nazi some of them mock hitler as a kind of as a weedy leader rather than as a as a as a, as a, as a kind of you know aryan physical ideal so it's it's more complicated than, than that, but I do I do worry about about the, uh, the continuance of this ideal of the of the uh, it's just like like kind of Nazi propaganda really the the big tall blonde kind of well male and female physical ideal the ideal the idea that that a physical type. Somehow has some kind of moral superiority, the kind of moral supremacy. That's a whole white supremacy thing. I, I think is you know utterly disgusting. And and and, and I, I do wonder if some of the, some of its, some some of the kind of backwash of it in popular culture promulgates that. One of the figures, one of the great symbols in Old Norse mythology is the symbol of the World Tree, Yggdrasitl. This huge world, world tree, and one of the first signs of Ragnarök, the end of the world, the Norse apocalypse, is that the tree will begin to tremble and will begin to creak. And you know, I mean, real old trees do that. Trees, you know, the ancient trees that we can see do that. And if there's a storm, you know, the, these these great symbols of longevity and 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 stability begin to start to... to, to show. And that's the great thing about about Old North Myth, the idea that nothing lasts forever. <laughs> that, that everything has a kind of organic lifespan.
0: Professor Heather O'Donoghue there, and the reporter was Rachel Andrews. And finally, this time on the Culture File Weekly, we make another visit to the Wicklow Library of Paddy Woodworth to hear about the writings, thinkings, warnings and celebrations that populate the naturalist's bookshelf. This time, Paddy reaches up for Bill McKibben's 1989 book The End of Nature, an early warning cry about irreversible changes that humans were causing on their home planet.
4: Nature as we have found repeatedly on the naturalist's bookshelf, is a tricky and often troubling word, as well as a reassuring and uplifting one. However we use it, it tends to return to haunt us, asking us awkward questions about a relationship we take for granted at our peril. It figures very large in the dramatic title of the book Off Our Shelves This Evening, Bill McKibben's landmark 1989 broadside on climate change, The End of Nature. This book has been compared, rightly I think, to Rachel Carson's 1960s Silent Spring. They both marked a turning point in public attitudes to the environment, and McKibben was only 27 when he published it. He sets out, succinctly and accessibly, the compelling evidence that human activity is changing our climate, and therefore everything else, in very dangerous ways. OK, that may seem like old hat to you now, but bear in mind that he was writing several years before the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change first published a report. Sadly, his well-informed polemic has obviously not had the same impact as Carson's expose on pesticides did. We depend far more deeply on fossil fuels, than we ever did on DDT, and it's taking us much longer to kick this lethal addiction. Nevertheless, McKibben deserves great credit for bringing the story to such a very wide readership. But I don't want to rehash the climate story this evening. Instead, I want to try to tease out some ideas behind McKibben's title. The End of Nature certainly communicates a bleak warning that we have crossed a fateful threshold in our relationship with our environment. And in this, McKibben is spot on. Human-generated climate change is an unprecedented shift in our impact on the world around us. The consequences are already grimly familiar, and they're likely to get much, much worse, unless we change our ways. But is this really the end of nature? McKibben himself is quite upfront early in the book that it is not. The rain will still fall, he writes, and the sun shine, though differently than before. And he then explains what he does mean. When I say nature, he says, I mean a set of human ideas about the world and our place in it. My problem with McKibben here is not that he thinks nature is a cultural construct. It very often is. My problem here is that he assumes his ideas about this cultural construct are universal. But I think his ideas are actually very particular. A blend of European colonial ideals with a Christian vision of the perfect paradise as an Eden cleansed of sinful humanity. These ideas indeed informed much classic American nature writing wedded as it was to a romantic frontier mentality. And though many writers have challenged this vision in the 20th century, it remains deeply influential. It has echoes today in the burgeoning popularity of the so-called rewilding movement, which also draws on a romantic view of a world without us. I first read The End of Nature, just after I had read Simon Sharma's Landscape and Memory which also featured recently on this bookshelf. And I was immediately struck by the gulf between their takes on the human place in the natural world. Shama finds traces of human activity even in remote landscapes, places that Western visitors had often celebrated as pristine, untouched by our grubby hands. But Shama finds this interlacing of culture and nature bracing, A source of enrichment. McKibben, on the contrary, is actually repelled by the human presence in nature. He is quite explicit about this. Nature is defined, he writes, by its separation from human society. So the ideal way to experience nature seems to be a solo hike into what we imagine as wilderness, even if that wilderness has been shaped in significant ways. By other cultures. McKibben's natural world is also a little too full of bounty and benevolence. He has none of Annie Dillard's sense of dark forces, as well as bright ones, out there in that primeval thicket. McKibben argues this case for separated nature, what the Australian environmentalist Keith Bradby calls ecological apartheid, with persuasive passion, and in fairness, he has since developed a more nuanced perspective. With typical modesty, in a 2005 essay, he wrote that some crucial passages in the book now appear to him as callow, and he concedes, I romanticise the wild a great deal. And my point here is not to pull his book off its well-deserved pedestal. Rather, I want to suggest that it is valuable not only for its revelation of the follies of ignoring climate change, but also for setting down unusually explicit markers in the debate about the nature of nature. And this is a debate I believe we still urgently need to resolve if we are to move forward successfully towards a truly sustainable world.
0: Paddy Woodworth there on The End of Nature by Bill McKibben, the latest volume of our survey of essential nature writing. And if you follow us on Twitter right now, that's at CultureFilePod, we'll tweet a link to the playlist with all the previous entries, celebrations and warnings from Peter Matheson's The Birds of Heaven to Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more advertisements for the apocalypse next week at 6.30pm here on RTE Lyric FM and in all your favourite podcast places. Till then, bye now.